This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where out of print is available again, and listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links, and thank you to our patrons like Doug Palmer and Mark for supporting us over at patreon.com slash Show. This is James Jacobs, author of Lords of Madness and Finnish Codex 1 and Expedition to the Ruins of Greyhawk, and you are listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 276, we decided to let it go, just like a certain ice queen, as we talk about running sandbox games. And we brought in... Well, a uh, contingent of folks from Team Cold Press to join us in this episode. Perhaps we'll bend their ear about their latest D&D offerings as well. First up is the Kobold in Chief coming at us from TSR by way of Wizards of the Coast, the Open Design Project, and Kobold Press. Uh, he's also a friend of the show, which I'm sure of all those things is the, is the title he's most proud of. Wolfgang Bauer, welcome back. Woohoo! Friend of the show, irate. It's I, good to be here. I believe you were the first interview I ever had on the show. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. And I was like, "Ooh, how does this technology work?" Yeah. I talked into a microphone. <laughs> yeah, it was a very I, early interview for me. I talked about it briefly. Um, I was interviewed for the official D and D podcast recently, and I talked. Yes. Brief, I, I talked momentarily about you coming on in those early days. So awesome with uh, Daniel Perez. Remember him? I think he's the one that yes. introduced us. Yeah. Right, right. No. Wow. Okay. Let's not think about how long ago 276 shows was. Oh, yeah, man. I, I, it, it boggles the mind. I've been doing this for over 10 years. Wow. Great. Oh, and, and also with us, so it's not just the, the Jeff and Wolf reminiscing show, uh, is a developer from Paizo who, as I understand, is doing an awful lot of work these days on Starfinder, a newcomer to the show, Amanda Hammond-Coons. Do we still have Amanda? Aaron, thanks for inviting me. Oh, there you are. Hi, can you hear me okay? <laughs> yeah, we hear you now. Uh, and and we also invited uh, Steve Winter, and I had this whole brilliant uh, write-up to introduce him, but uh, we have not found him this evening, so if he might be joining us later, he might not. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But in any case, welcome, everybody. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. And it's great to have such an awesome panel with us, and at the end of the advice discussion... We're going to take some time to hear about what sort of awesome things they've been cooking up. But for now, we'd like to uh, mention our sponsor, the fantastic Noble Knight. They supported us for a long time. So if you like the show, go show them your appreciation and maybe pick up a new adventure or something. We can make a recommendation even. How about Prepared, a book of adventures that might be useful to someone running a sandbox game published by none other than Cobalt Press. Rather than having me tell you about it, we might as well have the Cobalt in chief. Uh, Hey, what's Prepared? So Prepared is, uh, it started as a blog series by John Sawatsky um, of, well, little encounters, weird little encounters, fun little encounters that you could run in a night or throw in anywhere, really. Um, And they were so popular, we said, why don't we get like some proper maps for them and, you know, (laughs) clean them up a little, put some illustrations around it and do, uh, do them under a set of covers. And... It's been fun to see that people like that sort of one-shot adventure, right? The, the parachuted in, it doesn't belong to any particular setting, um, and it covers levels from like 1 to 12, I want to say. Um, 
it, it reminds me of the sidetracks I used to edit in Dungeon Magazine, it, which were always an incredibly popular feature, and which, as an editor, I always went, man, I wish we had more of those. People love that stuff that you can drop in anywhere. Um, but you know how writers are. Most writers <laughs> want to write, like, well, an encyclopedia, a hardcover, a giant volume, a six-part series. Um, and so, so I guess the product uh, has caught on. People like it. We might do another one. There you go. That sounds great. Um, and I hope you do. And for now, a word from Noble Knight. Ah! Hey, it's me, Snurg! I don't really like Noble Knights that much, but NobleKnight.com is okay by me. You know why? They got tons of products for me where I can just be hiding in dungeons and stuff like that. Also, it's it's really, really cool. I get to find all these bestiaries that I can fill my dungeon with and all kinds of goblin miniatures. So check out Noble Knight. They'll even buy old gaming products that you aren't using anymore, and they're awesome. NobleKnight.com. Make sure you tell them the Tome Show sent you. Alright, we are back, and now it's time to get into Sandbox Games. Uh, it's the never-ending quest to let players do what they want and still feel like you know what the heck you're doing on game day. So I thought it might be useful before we, we really got into discussion about how to do Sandbox Games uh, to mm -hmm. understand that, or see if we can all get on the same page about what Sandbox Games are. Yes. Because I think that's part of the issue that people have with discussing sandbox games is I don't know that I feel like there's necessarily a unified vision of what sandbox gaming means or what it looks like. Well, everyone says it's the awesome, perfect, ultimate, empowering, easy, fun alternative to the horrible, bad, railroady, you know, no player agency one track adventure that nobody wants to play and <laughs> and i think a lot of people put you know a sense around sandbox that it's player freedom player choice the adventure goes in any direction um and that there's not a big narrative through line that's the main point right it's a dungeon only maybe it's not maybe it's a wilderness um it's wide open from a story perspective. So, so you're saying there's no narrative through line. Does that mean that the the expectation is that the DM is not preparing a story? Eh, I think that in my take on it, the DM has a story, but maybe he's just piling up, you know, hooks and horrible catastrophes and encounters. Um, and maybe, yeah, there's a little more improv in it, because if you're visiting, I don't know, Keep on the Borderlands, right? Or uh, any traveler adventure, that you've got a spaceship and the universe is at your feet. Um, I mean, the decisions the players make about, well, do we go to the keep? Do we go to the caves? Do we wander off into the wilderness? Sort of sets the tone for what happens. For me, a sandbox doesn't start with you're all in a tavern and someone approaches you with a quest, right? Mm -hmm. That's not a sandbox. Um, a sandbox is you heard about the Court of the Shadow Fey. It's a mysterious place. And you can go there or not. Um, so the players buy into it in a different way. 
Right. I think a big element of a sandbox adventure is not that there is no story at all and the players are free to do whatever they want, but it's more that the players have the agency to choose in which way they experience the story. They have sort of a a challenge or a quest or um, some sort of goal that they're trying to accomplish, and then they can make the decisions how they're going to go about doing that. And so the more, as a DM, if you're wanting to run a sandbox, um, the more that you're able to set up contingencies for the decisions they might make and the, the logic conclusions that they might come to or the types of investigations that they might want to pursue, um, the easier it is to be able to create that sandbox effect that they're actually making real decisions and uh, having real player agency as opposed to that horrible railroad that Wolf described. Yeah, I mean, th there's a certain point where it almost feels like sandbox gaming can can cover so much that you could almost be running a pre-prepared adventure and uh, if the players want to go left instead of right, the difference between sandbox and railroading is that, that a sandbox DM is just going to say, okay, I guess you go left, let's figure out what's over there. Uh, it's just a matter of right. not, not, not saying no. Exactly, yeah, and having sort of some tricks up your sleeve in the event that the players do decide to do something that you didn't anticipate, that you um, are able to invent an NPC that they come across or are able to extrapolate uh, what happens in the story from the decisions that they've made as opposed to just being stumped because they didn't do what you thought they were going mm -hmm. to do. Right. I mean, the design for a sandbox NPC is different than the design for uh, an NPC in a more structured adventure. Um, they have totally. a goal, right? They they have goals, like player characters have goals, and they try to make those evil plots happen. Um, but yeah, uh, the game master has a lot more say in how they go about it because clearly they're going to be foiled once or twice by the players, and at a certain point, there's just so many options, right? Um, that the sandbox scenario can't keep up with all the possibilities because there isn't that narrative through line. Um, the the important thing is to know well where's the where's the villain trying to get to, mm -hmm. um, and reaching that goal just like the players reaching their goal. Um, many roads lead to the big showdown at the finale. Sure. Right. Yeah, and sometimes part of the skill set that you need to have as a game master is to be able to uh, steer the players a little back toward the main plot in a way that feels natural to the course of the events, mm -hmm. so that when they do decide to do something really off the rails, uh, you're sort of leading them back to uh, what your big plot wanted to be, what your your big villain plan was, or what your big reveal was in a way that doesn't make it feel like the players are being forced to uh, to get into a situation that they feel like they didn't choose. Yeah, so so I want to I want to talk a little bit about the idea of, of how to make your your campaign or your your adventure or whatever more sandboxy, uh, because you know Wolf, you mentioned the the difference between uh, the mysterious stranger approaches you in the tavern and you hear about this mysterious place while you're in the tavern, um, and, and, <laughs> and that seems like a fairly fuzzy line to me. Um, it is. It know? is. I think. I mean, the sandbox is. You're at the keep on the Borderlands, and how you engage with it is totally up to you, mm -hmm. right? You can boot around the tavern if you want, talking to people all day, and that may lead you to something interesting. You may go out to the caverns. You may, you know, pursue some other direction. The thing about narrative and railroads is there's a good way and a bad way to do it. And the bad way is, here's the adventure, guys. 
like it or leave it, right? Um, the more it's presented as you got to go this way, the more some players will just buck and say, I'm not doing what you say. That's never going to happen. Um, and yeah, so, especially... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go. Oh, so I was thinking... You know, a lot of adventures, uh, for folks who are running uh, pre-made adventures, they have sort of box text and they have dialogue that the NPC is supposed to say, right, when they're they're giving you your quest or they're explaining in the background of something. And I think that being able to see beyond the box text and to understand the uh, to role-play that NPC when the, the players are looking for something beyond that box text and understanding why they're saying what they're saying in the adventure and getting um, getting yourself prepared to respond is just as important as actually reading that box text to the players when they mm. meet the NPC. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the, the, the dominant feature here in our conversation is um, the that the difference between a sandbox game and a railroad game is flexibility um and and it seems to me that 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 even that can hold a pretty wide range of flexibility that that there might be a narrative but you're ready for the players to go the other direction it might be um just throwing a whole bunch of things at them and, and you've got villain plots going on in the background and i have another example too uh, so I was also thinking, um, like, parts of the Lost City that I worked on with Wolfgang, uh, we did, um, like, one of my parts had different factions, and when I wrote it, I couldn't assume that the players were necessarily going to line up with one of the factions over the other. Right. So that's, right. like, so another you had level to build. Yeah, yeah. So you had to build in contingencies. I mean, a lot of Call of Cthulhu adventures are written this way too, right? Where you don't know necessarily who the bad guys are at the start. You don't even know what the problem is. Um, so exploration can be a big part of a sandbox. Uh, yeah. Mystery, sort of, you know, that let's poke around at it for a while sense. Um, hey. Hey. Is that Steve? Steve. That's Steve. All right. So we've already started discussing, and, and in case our listeners don't know who Steve Winter is, uh, he is the man who used to reject all of my crappy pitches to Dragon Magazine, uh, having worked at that magazine and done other things over at Wizards of the Coast, uh, having also come to us uh, via TSR like Wolf did back in the day. Uh, he's been doing a lot of work for Kobold lately, especially focusing on the 5th edition work that Kobold does, if I understand correctly. And, if Wikipedia is to be believed, another Iowa native like myself. Uh, yeah, I so, spent uh, 20 years in Iowa. And, so. and a fellow uh, Iowa State alum, yes? Oh, yeah. yeah there yep. we go. Go Cyclones. I, Iowa State Games Club was kind of my, uh, my big introduction <laughs> to role-playing games. All right, so so we've we've sort of defined uh, sandbox gaming and what it is. We've talked about uh, how to take a game and make it sandboxy, and and I think it largely comes down to flexibility. Um, I think there's also um, a lot of, I think people have a lot of apprehension uh, when when running a sandbox game. Uh, so so for the DMs out there, what tips do we have to help them run a sandbox game? Steve, you wanna do you wanna jump in there since you uh, just got in on the, the new, call? The newcomer. Sure, sure. I'll I'll give my viewpoint on that. I guess. You know, I, I would say that the number one thing 
the very best sandbox campaigns I've ever played in were run by people who were steeped in the genre that they were running. Mm. Um, so it, they didn't need to do a lot of preparation because, uh, you know, they, somebody, you know, they had read, you know, all the fantasy fiction that was around. And of course in the, you know, in the 1970s and eighties, there wasn't as much of it as there is now, but, um, or, uh, you know, probably, in fact, I would say the very best uh, sandbox campaign I ever played was the playtest campaign we did for Gangbusters back at TSR. It was run by Mark mm -hmm. Akers, who was the primary designer on that game. And he, as I said, he was, he just, he knew those movies and, you know, all that, the, the pulp fiction and the writing of, of, you know, Hammett and Chandler. He just knew that stuff inside out. So he didn't need a lot of preparation because he could just pull things out of his bag of tricks anytime he needed it. Hmm. So um, I, I guess I really think that's the best thing you can do if you want to run a sandbox game is it just really steep yourself in the kind of game you want to run. You know, watch those movies, read those books, read those comic books, um, and all that material just percolates constantly in the back of your brain uh, until you need it. And then you just, you know, when you need something, you just grab it and you throw it out there and you run with it. That's tricky advice to give, though, because it's like, I, I only <laughs> have is. so much time in my day and you're telling me to make a master's class of geek lore. <laughs> well, actually, what I'm telling you is pick a campaign to run that is something you love and you're already. That is something you already you're already passionate about. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Don't if you if you're not into superheroes, then don't go try to run you know a comic book sandbox campaign because you're going to have to do tons of preparation for it. But if you've been reading you know uh, superhero comics your whole life, you know since you were eight years old, hmm. you've already done all the preparation you need. You know that that stuff is there. Sure. I mean, if you're really passionate about post-apocalyptic fantasy, then you could easily do a sandbox Dark Sun campaign or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think if you don't have a passion for for what you're doing with a sandbox campaign, it's not going to work. Uh, I don't think it really matters how much preparation you do. Hmm. If you're just doing it because you want to do a sandbox and not because you love the material, much more so than any other kind of RPG campaign. I think you you've got to love what you're doing with a sandbox campaign. So so genre over sandbox is is what you're saying. I like love well, your, I love they, your genre more than you love your sandbox. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean I think they go hand in hand, but and frankly, I think if you're if you're playing a campaign in a in a genre you love, even if it's a very scripted uh, you know, railroady adventure path kind of uh, of campaign if it's a if it's a genre that you really love and that you're steeped in all the tropes, it's it's going to constantly veer toward becoming a sandbox ca campaign mm -hmm. anyway, because you've got all those ideas constantly percolating up to the surface, and you want to use them. Nope. So uh, yeah. there's almost no avoiding it when you when you find the right uh, when you find the right thing. Uh, there's almost no avoiding having it become a sandbox. Campaign. Well, and there, and there's a point where I feel like some of that comes along just as you become more experienced at running games anyway. 
Um, you know, I, I almost chafe a little bit even at the concept of sandbox versus railroad because I don't know that I feel like there's much distinction. Uh, I think it's a, it's about whether or not your DM is experienced enough to feel comfortable being letting you be you know being flexible or not. You know, right uh, is really the the difference, right? I might run a published adventure and or I, I prepared them uh, to to do a thing and then they do another thing, uh, and if I'm experienced enough to to roll with that, then then look at that, we just turned it into a sandbox. You know. I mean, this is a common failing of the inexperienced DM, right? If it's not in the scenario, you panic because you don't know where to go with it. Um, And so you try to get people back on track, right, where the adventure says you're supposed to go. Um, If you're a more experienced and confident game master, hey, guess what? You say, oh, you guys want to head off down the river. Sure, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And um, as Steve said, right, you can improvise because you know the tropes so well. Uh, and either you'll loop around back to it or or you won't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it, jumping off of that a little bit, depth of for or depth of forethought is very important as well. So you might be running that uh, that published adventure and it doesn't really cover what happens when the PCs decide to go down the river. But if you've read the entire adventure and you've absorbed the world and you've absorbed uh, sort of the setting of what's uh, happening, and the zeitgeist of all of that, then you'll have a great idea of what might be down the river, what makes sense, um, what continues the verisimilitude of the game world. Uh, and it can be a lot of fun, and things can happen that, you know, of course, the, public, the published adventure uh, can't anticipate. But if you have thought about it, and like, you, like Steve said, you're steeped into that world, it can be a really fun sort of uh, diversion and can end up being a better game than it would have been if you would have forced them to not go down the river because you weren't willing to consider what might happen. Right. And it's still tricky advice, right? Because it's hard to tell somebody, um, you know, just don't freak out, don't panic, right? <laughs> be creative <laughs> and, and come up it's with gonna something. It's going to be okay, right? really. Right. Yeah. Well, I, but that's really a lot of what it is. It's just becoming comfortable. Like, uh, like, I, yeah. I, like, I don't even know that, like, I necessarily feel like I need to be that steeped in, in the setting, uh, you know, so they went down the river and I wasn't expecting them to go down the river. Okay, but I know kind of the story of the campaign that we're involved in. And if they go down the river, I can have a sense of what might be going on down there. If not, yep. I can make something up on the fly that will at yeah. least not ruin the, the narrative that, that the world is telling, right? Um, so it's not yeah, like... Just it's having not, the confidence. Right. And, and exactly. it's, not, it's not a matter of you, before you run a sandbox game, you have to memorize the entire history of the Forgotten Realms because you're not going to do that, you know? There's just too much lore. Midgard is mm-hmm. a really dense setting book. Like, there's a lot there. You're not going to memorize it all and, and run your, your sandbox yeah, game. Yeah, but if you know what the key touch points are, yes. then you're going to be able to say, oh, you know, this is that kind of place. I can I can bring this faction in. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you can sort of expand your imagination to to figure out what might happen um, given, you know, whatever decisions the PCs have made. You don't need to know every single little detail about Midgard to know that, uh, you know, if they're in the Marodi Empire, they're, they're going to come across uh, some dragonkin. Maybe there's going to be some feuding clans or something like that. Just having the confidence of feeling like you are able to tell the story of the adventure that's being run, I think, is a really big um, point, and that's very important for uh, game masters to have. And it's worth noting, yeah. you don't even have to know all that much about that. You really just need to know enough to get through the rest of the session, and then you can read up on it before the next game, right? So. Well, yeah. and another thing is, like, um, one of the best pieces of advice I got from my friends when I first started uh, – GMing was um, not to be afraid of the the phrase like 
the world pauses as the GM thinks. So it's, mm. sometimes it's okay <laughs> to take a break. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, especially if you just need a couple of seconds to sort of take a deep breath and think about uh, what you want the PCs to encounter or what you think you know you need to come up with on the fly. That can really be a very good sort of balancing moment. You're right, Tracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had I had players uh, wander into the Underdark when I was expecting them to go back out to their their. Um, their slavery that was supposed to be the big, you know, thread through the through the entire campaign, and they decided no, or we'd rather go into the underdark at first level rather than uh, be slaves. <laughs> so, so it's Old like okay, choice. yeah, that, uh, let's go with that, and um, let let's run it. We've only we got a couple more hours left today. Let's let's run a couple of random encounters, and then we'll call it good. And that gives me a chance to figure out what the heck I'm going to do now, or to, uh, you know, exactly. somehow make it so you yeah. can survive the underdark. You know, I just got to get through another hour. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're in you're in control as a GM, and ultimately, going back to what you said about needing not needing to know every single little thing about the Forgotten Realms, if you come up with something that is not exactly canon, or if you extrapolate something that it turns out wasn't really written about uh, anywhere in the setting, that ultimately doesn't matter as long as your players are having a good time and they feel like you're running a game that they're enjoying and that you're telling a rich story. That's really all that matters. Yeah, I think where DMs oftentimes get tripped up on that though is that. At least this is where I'm always apprehensive, even even after all these years of, of DMing, is that um, if I'm running a, a, a pre-planned or even a published adventure and, and I make something up, I don't want it to run counter to a, an important story beat that I didn't realize was going to come down the road three chapters from now. Sure, sure. Yeah, and realizing what a minor detail is uh, in context of something larger that could be world-affecting is also uh, sort of a little thing to keep in mind while you're doing that as well. And sometimes that just means you got to rename a town or something, and it's not a big deal. Yeah. You you just do that. Right, exactly. There's nothing that says in the published adventure that you can't change whatever you need to make it fit your game, right? Right. That's what we do as as adventure publishers is we want you to make it yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it... um... It's important for new GMs to eventually learn and come to understand that there's almost nothing you can break so badly that it can't be put back together again. Um, especially since in most Sounds cases... Sounds like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> well, but and in, since in most cases, the only the GM is going to know that something was broken. Um, un- unless you actually say to the players, oh, wait, oh, man, I just totally screwed this up. Right. Don't say that. <laughs> Don't <laughs> tell them that. Keep that to yourself. You know, keep Just that all roll inside. with it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, roll with it. And and as was pointed out earlier, when you know, all you have to do is get through the session that's right in front of you, and then you can take your time and figure out how to fix whatever problem you created. Um, yeah, you know, I can't. It's, I can't tell you how yeah. many how many sessions I was an idiot where. You know, I, I did something clever or I, I made something up or I took something that the players said and I'm like, yeah, that's actually totally what happened, even though I just made that up right now. Uh, and then ruined it by afterwards telling them how clever I was and how I made that thing up because they said it. <laughs> oh, and then it's no. like, oh, I ruined it. Like, I, gave, I gave you the, the – I let you look behind the screen and it completely uh, broke the illusion. So I, I, wanted, I wanted recognition for being so clever. You know, <laughs> so. yeah. I had a player once say – to me in all seriousness and and with a tone of disappointment you're making it all up (laughs) (laughs) and i was like we've been playing together for six months and i yes yes i am uh this is fantasy role-playing welcome to it right (laughs) um 
but but there is a sense among some players and GMs that there is like an official canonical version, and that's the only right one. And I think the longer, you, yeah, I mean, the longer you play, the more you realize uh, if you're having a good time, you're doing it right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, mean, I run into yeah. a lot of uh, I run into a lot of fans that are very concerned about uh, ruining the writer's vision or changing something or or somehow messing up the published adventure. And uh, it's it's like you know it was made up when it was published. Feel free to continue to make it up as you run it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, embellish it further. I mean, it's sort of the oral tradition, right? Retell it your way. Um, mm-hmm. Make Hi. it new. Make it. Interesting. And I imagine publishers and authors have every expectation that that's happening at like 100% of the tables that are playing their adventure, right? So, yeah, if they were all exactly the same, I, you know, if they were running it, yeah, no, that would be disappointing. I mean, you wouldn't need a DM if everything was going to be run by the letter, right? You could program a computer to run that adventure. And I think they, I think they have done that. Sure. So, so I think the the thing that is daunting to many DMs though is is if you're running a wide open sandboxy sort of game, uh, preparation seems scary because either you have to figure out how not to be prepared or how or w- be super prepared or figure out what to prepare and what not to prepare. I think preparation is a major topic for to discuss for DMs in terms of running a sandboxy game. So so what should a DM be preparing? How should they be pre- getting that ready? You know. Where should they be on that? What do you think? Well, I, I go ahead, Wolf. All right. Well, I'll I'll put forward my trick with uh, Courts of the Shadow Fay, which was um, is a sandbox, but it's really three sandboxes next to each other. Mm. Um, so, in sort of design terms, it's like you can do whatever you want for the first third of the adventure. There's as many paths as you care to follow, as many clues as you care to pursue, but at a certain point. I want things to sort of move to the next stage. Mm-hmm. And then I have an, an event, right? Which changes how the players see things and what they see their goals as. Um, it's just a story beat and a, a reversal. So, and then I do the same thing as you get closer to the finale, right? There's a middle section. You can explore. You can do things. Um, so one way to think about preparing is like, well, create an area, create people in it. And then sort of decide, like, when should this chunk be over, right? Um, I don't think it's... I don't think it's opposite the sandbox ethos to at some point say, hey, you've explored that section of wilderness and it's really fully explored, right? Um, here's something shiny and glittery to attract the attention of the players and pull them rather than push them into the next section. And that pull versus push is... I don't know. It's a technique I use a bunch in sandbox play. Um, and it, it is very much the, oh, look, a squirrel, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it's throw something in front of the players that draws them out of whatever rat hole they're in and makes them say, oh, my goodness, down the river, there's a smuggling operation. <gasps> that ties into what we know, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all of a sudden, they're engaged with the new information, Um and they're moving so, on. Yeah, and moving on to the next thing. So, yeah. yeah Figure out think, what your squirrels are. I think similarly, I think, um, like, I've had a lot of success in my games 
largely by just knowing my players really well and knowing the way they're going to play in this campaign. Like, I start a new campaign, I'm not quite sure how things are going to go, whatever, but by the second or third session, I almost feel like it's a ra- I'm preparing a rarity game because I know what five hooks I put out, but I also have like 80% certainty that they're going to go with hook B, and there's about a 15% chance maybe they'll go with C. So if I'm just prepped for those couple of things, I'm probably going to be okay. You know, so so some of it is just a matter of, of knowing the people you're playing with and knowing the choices they've made in the past and considering that about where they might go in the future. Yeah, yeah. And sort of an interesting flip side to that is I run a lot of con games and I run a lot of off the cu- off the cuff sort of mm. semi homebrew, semi published adventures. Just things that I think will be fun for players. Uh, a lot of times, people I've never met or folks who you know have signed up for my games uh, at at different conventions. And so I sort of have three tiers of preparation. I prepare the adventure uh, if it's published, or or I come up with all of the the plot points and stuff if it's not. And uh, you know I do all of the the heavy preparation work for that, getting the stat blocks out, uh, you know, figuring out uh, how all the mechanics are going to fit together. That's my first tier. And then my second tier is, well, uh, there's a strong possibility they might do other things that uh, are not part of this this main plot that I'm expecting. So I'll sort of pull some sample stat blocks out of uh, the NPC codex or some other books that have sort of pre-made stats uh, or monster stats or whatever that I think they might encounter. That's my second tier of preparation. And then I've got my third tier, which is to just totally 100% make it up. And the amount, uh, the number of times that uh, we get to that third tier... Uh, is sometimes a little surprising. So just sort of knowing, going into it mentally, that anything can happen, that I might totally just have to make up something. I might have to uh, come up with mechanics on the fly for an arm wrestling match. That's the thing that happened uh, at a con last year, and it ended up being... uh, one of the funniest and loudest role-playing uh, games that I've that I've ever ran. So, just sort of mentally being prepared that anything can happen can be really fun as a, as a GM and can also sort of get you out of the the nervousness of uh, needing to run exactly what you've prepared because you've mm-hmm. sort of prepared it all. Well, I'm even at a point where when I run into those those Plan C's where I'm just got, having to completely make it up. Um, to a certain point, I'm trying to do more of asking questions rather than making something up, right? Oh, you went down the river instead of following the path? Okay, tell me what you run into. And then let them sort of uh, help build the world and, and build the narrative along the way. And then, okay, so so you made up this, this camp of gypsy elves. Great. And then I'll turn that into something and see how it fits into the larger narrative that we're telling and all that kind of stuff. So I'm trying to get yeah, better yeah. at asking more questions and letting them make stuff up. Yeah, sometimes just seeing what they pick up on and following and unraveling that thread yourself as the GM can be really entertaining and fun and can lead you down paths uh, to prepare things later on that you mm-hmm. never would have expected that they got to. But you're, like you said, paying attention to uh, that little thing that they have decided that they're going to pursue and gone from there. Okay, so I, I think we've talked a lot about... Um, Sandbox gaming for DMs, honestly, I think that's where the bulk of the advice that people need probably lives is is DM tips and tricks and how to prepare and, and where to get the creativity and the ideas and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I don't think it's um, irrelevant to also maybe give players in sandbox games some tips or tricks or advice. Um, and I don't know if, if that is something that we have 
thought through ahead of time, uh, and I just wrote the script, you know, five minutes before we started recording. So, um, so I don't know that I was <laughs> knew that I was going to ask about it either. But, um, but I think that's an interesting uh, area to think about too. So, if you're playing in a sandbox game, what kind of things could you do to make that work and make that fun for everybody? So I'd say if you're playing in a sandbox game, uh, it's important to, as a player, pay attention to all of the little details and look for little plot crumbs or uh, little story tidbits that the GM might be trying to drop Mm. and see if looking into that uh, leads anywhere or if the GM is sort of dropping hints that's like, oh yeah, that rabbit over there, yeah, that's that's just a rabbit. Uh, Or if it turns out that the rabbit is actually the familiar of a sorcerer that has been hiding in the woods and there is a clue in their huts, but they're not there. And then sort of, uh, you know, seeing if that's something that uh, has any sort of merit or interest on in the context of the larger game. So paying attention to what the GM is doing uh, and just sort of being a smart and aware player can help you get a lot more out of a sandbox game than if you're just looking for, okay, where's the treasure? Where's the monster? Where's the loot? Um, that's not as fun most times in sandbox games. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. Go- going whole hog for the immersion is the best road to really getting the most out of a sandbox campaign as a player. You know, it's You're not on a, uh, in the big picture at least, you're not on a timetable, right? You're not being driven to constantly, you know, move on to the next element of whatever adventure path you're on. So you have time to uh, interact with the townspeople, you know, to spend some time just hanging out in the tavern and talking to people, uh, you know, ex- just exploring, seeing, you know, what's around the bend in the river or over that hill, uh, you know, and uh, as, uh, as Amanda said, just really kind of think about the world you're in, put yourself in it and, and you know, how you would react in that situation, uh, you know, how you would inter- interact with these people, um, and and the and the bigger consequences of that, right? It's in in adventures where you're constantly moving on um, because the the plot says something else is happening now. Uh, in a lot of ways, you lose consequences in that, right? In but in a sandbox campaign, if you do something that winds up getting you know the mayor's son killed. Uh, there there can be much larger ramifications to that um, or you know your your inaction gets the town burned down or your inaction allows the goblins to escape or your you know because you stalled to look for treasure uh, you know the uh, the bandits got away or whatever it might be um, it's because that because those elements aren't scripted the gm can bring more consequences for your actions into the game, and that that makes everything much more uh, much more engaging. And as a player, I, I think it's it's not only your responsibility, but kind of your uh, you know the whole point of it is to engage with that stuff and you know really really feel it. Hmm. And I think overlapping with your advice about. Um immerging yourself into the into the 
setting in the campaign and whatever. Um, I think I would I would also sort of highlight go ahead and buy in. Like like don't make the DM work to get you to buy into what's happening. Um, if, if as a player you're not zigging when you're supposed to be zagging just to torture the DM, that would be super helpful. If you're interested and focused on the story that, that's playing out and you're looking for those story threads like Amanda talked about, um, you know, I think there's a level of buy-in that uh, if the DM doesn't have to work about getting that from you as much, then they can focus on figuring the rest of it out on the fly because they don't know exactly where you're going to go. Right. I mean, the player I'm always looking to in some of these kinds of scenarios is the person who's taking notes or drawing the map because they're the ones who are most engaged with what's going on. Hmm. Um, and in a sandbox as a player, I'd love to keep a checklist. It's like we've met all these NPCs. We've followed up these threads, these threads, these threads. Or, um, you know, we've, we've kicked down all these doors, but not that one. Um, because often the more doorbells you push and the more uh, people you quiz, the more you're, you're sort of giving uh, the DM a chance to say, okay, here's some more people who will, who will interact with you and show the world to you. Um, of course, if things are going well... Uh, some of those people you're trying to meet, some of the people on the checklist ultimately turn against you. But, <laughs> I mean, if it's the mayor's son thing, um, the ideal sandbox player for me, frankly, asks all the questions, keeps all the maps, and then does something reckless um, or foolish that entertains everyone, right? Yeah. Uh, they put themselves out there a little. And, and it might not be stupid. It might just be you know, the cleric is really playing into his character and he's following this strange faith and every time he drags everyone else with him into the adventure. Well, that's wonderful. That's a trope and it, it becomes part of the rhythm of the group um, because, you know, oh, here he goes again. Um, but everyone's on board with it and it's part of the fun. But, but reckless is different than distracting. Like yeah, playing your character and, and you know, barging forward into the next, you know, uh, story point or whatever, um, or really playing up your It may not even be faith. story point, right? It might yeah. just be a conflict with the local whatever, constabulary. It might be. But, but, but having followed that immersion and staying focused on the story and all that uh, in the process yeah. of doing it, I think is fine. If it, But if it's just the player who's kind of getting bored and decides to burn down the tavern and now suddenly your grand high fantasy save the world adventure has turned into, uh, you know, cops and robbers, um, then that's a How whole... many campaigns have <laughs> turned into outlaws or should have turned into <laughs> outlaws hunted on every side? Right. The... Uh, then that's a very different type of uh, of you know barreling forward because because that yeah. may be entertaining for about five minutes but now where do we go because now we're telling a whole different campaign than anybody was expecting. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I play with some groups that are perhaps more cautious than is required, and so I I like it when people take a risk. Um, but the flip side of that is clearly the danger of I'm just poking at this fire with a stick, right? I'm <laughs> well, I DM a group of 12-year-olds at an after-school gaming club, so... Uh... Ah! <laughs> so what you said about knowing your players is yeah. very important. Yeah. Cautious uh, old grognards play... versus 12-year-olds who want to smash something. Right. Yeah. Yes. They've left a string of 
burgled general stores in their wake, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, so, so any other player tips? Well, I would amplify on what Wolf said there, and, and, and I think, and just say, you know, don't be afraid to make things happen, right? A, a sandbox campaign is very much about the characters. It's not about the big story you're trying to tell. It's about the story that the characters are, are weaving around themselves. Mm -hmm. So go make things happen. Absolutely. So I think uh, we, can, we can wrap up with just some any, any last thoughts on sandbox gaming in general, tips for anybody, players, DMs, uh, other, both, whatever. Uh, any last thoughts on, on sandbox gaming um, before, we, before we start wrapping up? Uh, I'll start. I, I wanted to uh, toss one thing out there on the preparation idea, um, and that's it, it, the piece of advice I would give DMs in terms of preparing is uh, some old school wisdom, and that's sit down and make up some random encounter tables. Um, and you don't even necessarily even need to use them, but the just the act of drawing mm -hmm. them up makes you think about what is in this area? What's going on here? Are there bandits? Are there goblins? Are there, you know, giant things that, that fly around like, you know, rocks and pterodactyls and things like that? Um, even if you never make a die roll on any of those random encounter tables, the, the going through that exercise helps to cement in your mind the atmosphere uh, and the the setting mm. of where all of this is taking place, and you'll have a much easier time of winging it uh, because you went through that. Because right. you know what the ecology is, you kind of know what what you know NPCs they might bump into, and all that yeah, stuff exactly. it solidifies. Yeah. yeah, and plus you have that table there to you know uh, again, even if you never use it, it's a little bit of a of a reassurance, right? <laughs> Ooh, well, if I need it, I can always go to the table. It's a safety net. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very similar to what Steve said is that I would advise game masters to to not feel overwhelmed and to not feel like they need to to know everything to do all of the preparation to feel like that they have planned for every possible um, every possible decision every possible contingency uh, only get to the point where you feel like you are comfortable building the fictional world of the game so get to the point where like Steve said you know what monsters live in the area you know uh, what the general threats are you know uh, what types of people are in the town what types of NPCs might be in a tavern or uh, any of the buildings where the PCs might go um, so that when they do make the decision to point at a random building on the map and say, I want to see what's in here, you can um, just pull from sort of your, um, your, uh, uh, your mind or your sort of resources mm -hmm. of what you know, uh, what you know, uh, you can sort of come up with on the fly as a, as a good story. And so um, if it's in if it's in town, you could certainly even uh, go Steve's route and build some random uh, build some random tables for uh, the types of buildings that they might go into, or uh, the types of random events that might happen, or mm -hmm. uh, anything that any little detail that's going to help build that world and make the PCs feel like uh, 
they're actually exploring something uh, that is living and breathing and not just flat on paper what you've decided that they should do. That's the difference between sandbox and railroad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, similar to the random table thing, I, in my current campaign, what I've done is I, I basically have four major story threads running through the game right now. Um, and I, and I, for each session, I basically say, okay, here's how this story thread is going to at least make an appearance to remind people that it's going on. Uh, and then right. I figure out, okay, what, give me one location that might be related to this story thread they might run into. Give me a, a list, and you know, I'm going to make a list of monsters that might appear in those locations. And then here's two or three NPCs that are tied into that story thread. Uh, and then when it comes time to, to run the game, it's just like, okay, go. But wherever you go, I've got a couple of interesting locations. I've got some NPCs I can sprinkle in. Here's some monsters I could make an encounter out of, uh, and and so it's not quite the the random table, but it's but it's pretty close, right? Yeah. Well, I've got one that's sort of tangential to that, but but ties into the four story bits. Um, this comes from something I wrote for the Cobalt Guide to Plots and Campaigns about thinking up your ending or your finale first. Um. One nice trick that works in sandboxes pretty well is is having um, having a conspiracy-minded boogeyman, the bad Illuminati, someone who's at fault for everything horrible, but who doesn't show up much. Um, so, you know, if it's the black circle of necromancers that everybody blames when the cow doesn't give milk, at first level it's, oh yeah, whatever, the black circle, sure behind this cow thing um by the time it's fifth level it's like wow the graveyard's empty huh must be the black circle um and at some point what you really want to have happen in your sandbox is not for you to say oh it's the black circle of necromancers has struck again when something inexplicable has gone wrong what you want is eventually for the players to say man that black circle they're bad we should go after them mm-hmm. and then right? it's their idea um, and then it's their idea. So if you can plant seeds of, you know, maybe it's the Dark Lord of the Fae, and maybe it's, you know, the Tricksters, or whoever it is, pick somebody to be a villain, um, the Hidden Forces, the New World Order, the Smuggler's Ring, uh, and just hint about them what you think is totally shamelessly um, frequently and I, I swear to you what you will think are the most blatant hints will take like 10 sessions for someone to say hey have we heard of those guys shouldn't we go after them hmm. uh, getting player action that um, where they pick up on what's really just rumor and innuendo in your campaign can be a lot of fun any other uh, last tips I guess I have one more I can I can wrap up with um, I kind of think it would be helpful for most people to stop worrying about whether or not their game is sandboxy or not. Yay! Uh, you know, let's just, instead of doing sandbox games, let's just run your game and tell your story and, and prepare to be flexible. Don't worry about whether or not it's sandboxy or on the rails. Just play your game. That's my last bit of advice. Wolf seems to like oh, it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mixing <laughs> it up is, is the best way to go. So anyway, uh, I think we will uh, wrap up the episode there. We'd like awesome. to say thank, thank you to our guests, Wolfgang Bauer, Amanda hey, Hemmen-Kunz, and Steve Winner. 
as well as our sponsor, Noble Knight, and all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or DMs Guild or being a patron of the show at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. But before we completely say goodbye, uh, we did promise to to check in and see what crazy things are these guys up to since since we do have a panel of three uh, designers who are all Cobalt Press folks. Uh, so what do you guys got going on? I hear there's there's some stuff in the works for all of you. <laughs> who wants to go oh. first? Uh, I'll go first. Sure. I'm kicking off a Midgard Kickstarter here and... Uh... That whole campaign setting from a few years ago is getting way more than just a new coat of paint. We're uh, we're taking the setting and expanding the options, basically bringing it into fifth edition and doing a bunch of work for Pathfinder players um, to to make it even better than it is already. So, uh, yeah, I've been staying up late and uh, hitting the keys and working with uh, co-writers and cartographers. And you'll be seeing that hit um, real soon, if not already. Yeah, so I think it'll be running through, uh, what, probably we could say through February 2017. Yes. Uh, yes. And so uh, hopefully this episode is out in time for people to hear that. And if not, uh, usually what the things that you produce through Kickstarters come out for a sale later. So people can always go to the, the Cobalt store and look for it there, right? Absolutely. There you go. Uh, and so that's going on. And so it's it's an update to the Midgard campaign setting. It's a right, conversion is, to 5th edition. Yes. Um, and it's an expansion of the player options with like separate player handbooks for Pathfinder and 5th edition. And it's expansion. And it's kind of a collection of some things that you've already published, some of the races uh, yep. and some of the magic uh, is going to be collected in one place. Uh, I believe I saw something about adventures as well. Yep. We are... Putting a bunch of adventures out as well, new ones, some short ones, some like prepared, some much longer. Um, I counted recently, and we have something like fifty uh, Midgard adventures out there. Um, so <laughs> there's no shortage, and uh, and yet we want to do more. And you said that there's also um, some new stuff for the Pathfinder players. Is that just the the new player options that you're talking about? You're going to uh, add those to it, or, or is there more to that? I'm going to let Amanda handle that because she's <laughs> developing it. All right. Yeah, I'm handling the Midgard Player's Guide for Pathfinder. And so that's a collection of a lot of the player rules options, player-facing rules options that Cobalt Press has published in the past several years. Uh, we're doing some uh, things with the races and uh, a whole bunch of archetypes. Uh, we're also um, pulling in a lot of the material from the... Um, uh, the regional players' guides uh, to the different regions in Midgard, which includes regional magic items and gear uh, and things like that. Uh, we are also sort of just rounding out all of the available um, options. So where uh, some of the uh, some of the campaign setting, as well as Southlands and even some of the regional books, had uh, racial feats. Um, and traits, uh, we realized, for example, that we didn't have any uh, racial feats for humans um, mm. because we had always just pointed people toward uh, the Pathfinder uh, race guide for the human feats. So uh, we're doing some of those, adding some uh, some new stuff, and uh, as well as some additional leyline artifacts and things like that to sort of uh, expand the options of all of the player 
options. Right on. And, and I imagine a lot of that will be reflected in the 5e version as well. So I, I, I guess you and, uh, and Steve and the 5e team are working pretty closely on, on what's going where? I'm going to say yeah, less than you think. Less than we yeah. think, okay. <laughs> I think they're really totally independent. It's okay. weird. We, uh, we have all this Pathfinder material, but the rule systems are so different. They are, And yeah. we've been on a different track for 5e. We've been putting out the Heroes books and Deep mm-hmm. Magic and other things. Um, but it's not a straight one-to-one mapping. I mean, we're covering a lot of the same races. Sure. Um, we're both doing a lot of magic, but they, they don't line up perfectly, and I... I don't think they necessarily should. The systems kind of have different strengths. Sure. So, so it was, it was more those. of a, it was more of a, a a larger sort of we're going to to do an updated version of Midgard Five uh, E team do that the best way you know how for Five E and Pathfinder team do that the best way you know for Pathfinder. Yeah, that's okay. really the approach. Okay, very good. Uh, it, speaking of, uh, you mentioned that there are something like fifty. Uh, Midgard Adventures, uh, published yeah. by Kobold. Uh, I imagine the bulk of those are Pathfinder. Yes? Yeah. yeah. Uh, probably the bulk, although with Prepared and uh, soon coming soon, Streets of Zobek for 5th edition, mm-hmm. and um, and a series I can't talk about because it's uh, Kickstarter or Stretch yeah. Goals. Uh, we actually have probably 25 5e adventures. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and certainly there's been a, a good handful of five E adventures. Any thoughts on converting some of those older Pathfinder adventures? If somebody wanted to to play through some of those uh, those classic Midgard adventures, um, but do it yeah. in a five E game. Oh, no. uh, Streets of Zobek is the one I guess we're announcing on your show. Oh um, yay! We get an announcement. Yay! <laughs> it, it, <laughs> hey, it won the Gold Any for Best Adventure. So uh, you know that one kind of rose to the top of the list for. Uh-huh. Let's do something for 5e. It's a really urban, dark, gritty kind of adventure that doesn't get done very often. I mean, mm-hmm. the tagline on it is, don't bring your paladin along for this one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that we're doing it for 5e. It took some some monkeying around to, to make it all work. Um, but it's an urban adventure, and there it's a go. ton of fun. And Zobek's always been an interesting uh, city in... I mean, that was sort of the, the original uh, home base for, for what you did, and then in Midgard sort of expanded out from there, right? Yeah. Uh, Zobek was very much the, the kicking-off point. It's the Greyhawk or the Waterdeep or, mm-hmm. you know, pick your, pick your favorite. Greyhawk um, with a little more steampunk and... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the Forgotten Realms with a way darker shade of fantasy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and then on top of all of this uh, kobold plans that people will be either looking out for or having already backed the the Kickstarter and its wildly successful um, stretch goals and, and add-ons and all the other things that I'm sure will come out of that, I expect nothing less than fantac- fan- a fantastic uh, response to the Kickstarter after how well Tome of Beasts went. So um, that's where the bar is now, Wolf. Oh, jeez. All right. <laughs> See what I could do. Uh, yeah, thanks. You're uh, a victim of your own success, Wolf. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. All right. <laughs> but Hi, speaking, I'm speaking of being a victim of our own success, Amanda, you're also working over at Paizo on uh, the Starfinder project that I know a lot of people are looking out for. Can you talk a little bit about where that's at and what's going on? 
Sure. So the Starfinder RPG is a brand new system. Uh, it is going to be similar to Pathfinder and familiar to you if you're familiar with Pathfinder or some of the older editions of D&D, but it is its own standalone system. Uh, there are some little tweaks and bits and bobs that we've changed to uh, to orient and optimize the game for a science fantasy flavor. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to sort of this whole new rules chassis, we've got um, a expansive setting chapter that uh, explains uh, the setting of Starfinder and the, the gist of it is that it takes place in the same solar system as Galarian which is our sort of home campaign our home world for Pathfinder but Galarian has disappeared and that's a core mystery of the setting Galarian has disappeared um, the solar system is still there and it's several thousand years in the future and so uh, we are uh, encouraging people to play it like a space opera and uh, there are all kinds of uh, adventure hooks that you'll be able to do we're detailing lots of brand new planets that we've invented just for the setting mm-hmm. as well as uh, updated the the planets that everybody's familiar with from Galarian we did a book called uh, Distant Worlds a few years back mm-hmm. that uh, had some details about each of the different planets in Galarian solar system and so that's the core of the setting for Starfinder. Very good. So, so in terms of setting, are you? Is it more um, Star Wars, Star Trek, Firefly, Flash Gordon? Where are we at there? So, I'd say that uh, for the core of the setting, it's probably it's probably close to it's sort of a mix of everything. Honestly, okay. Uh, okay. there's a little bit of there's, yeah, there's a little bit of Firefly in it. Uh, there's a little bit of of Star Trek exploration in it. Um, there's a, a core base called Absalom Station, which is in the place where Galarian uh, once was, and Absalom is sort of like the main city uh, where a lot of things in Pathfinder started. So. Um, uh, there's a lot of mysteries that we're not answering there, but uh, there's the space, and then there are all of these planets in that solar system, and so you will have the options of having lots of details and story hooks uh, in published adventures uh, eventually that take place there, but also it'll be a fully fleshed out entire universe with all kinds of new different creatures and monsters, and of course all the classes are new, mm-hmm. and uh, all the equipment is new, and so uh, it's it's very it's meant to be sort of its own flavor of thing. And the idea is that Star, the Starfinder setting takes place in, in Galarian's future? Yes, okay. yeah, several thousand years in the future. Or, okay. uh, I don't think we're being specific about exactly how right, far, sure. but uh, yes, it's a far future science fantasy so, Somewhere in the, in the undetermined future, this thing. Yeah, yeah, and so a lot of the, the big organizations that folks will recognize uh, from Pathfinder and Galarian still exist, but have uh, morphed and evolved and uh, become sort of interstellar in scope. And uh, there are, of course, a lot of new big organizations and threats, and uh, everything is uh, is meant to be on a, on a very large space opera scale. Sure, and then you can do fun things like take that that statue that you broke in your in your Pathfinder game and stick it in a museum in your Starfinder game with the with the the crack still in it from when you dropped it yes and now maybe it's a thousands years old years old uh, (laughs) relic artifact and nobody really knows exactly what happened um so in that way we we are sort of letting folks uh if they are interested in carrying through some of those storylines and there'll be a lot of interesting ways to potentially Mm -hmm. accomplish those goals or even just little fun easter eggs to make people you know yeah there's lots of lots of that (laughs) very good very good Cool. Uh, so uh, we should let people know where to get in touch with all of you guys. Wolfgang, if people want to find you on the internet, where do they go? 
they usually go on Twitter at Cobalt Press or at Monkey King or, you know, CobaltPress.com is always a good spot and Facebook uh, slash Cobalt Press. Great. And Amanda, where should people find you on the Internet? Um, probably mostly on Twitter. I'm at at Amanda Hammond. That's H-A-M-O-N. Very good. And Steve, if people want to talk to, to Steve Winter, where do they find him? Uh, yeah, Twitter is probably the uh, the best uh, at STV Winter. Um, I uh, I don't tweet unless I have something to say. <laughs> but, there you go. Uh, but if outrageous. people send if people send you a message, yeah. you might you might respond and, and have a conversation. Uh, yeah, I actually I actually carry on a fair amount of Twitter correspondence. There you go. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. And, of course, you can also, as Tracy mentioned earlier, hang out on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Whenever I'm looking for ideas about what we should do or I'm between whether we should review X or Y or who who we should try to get on uh, as panelists for future episodes, those are the people I go to, to to find out what they want to hear. So... Uh, you can hang out over there and, and get in touch with us there as well. And that's episode 276, where we just sort of played it by ear while we discuss sandbox gaming in this episode of... I'm off the wall.